The Heinemann Podcast presents a new six-week series. Of all the tools available to the classroom teacher to mitigate anxiety and relieve depression in students, writing is a powerful one. Over 200 research studies since the late 80s have reported that expressive writing especially can improve people's physical and emotional health. So how does writing do this? And what can I do as a classroom teacher to position my students to take this verbal medicine, as author Barry Lane calls it? Join me, Liz Prather, on the Heinemann Podcast each week starting April 4th as we learn about the healing power of writing. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann, dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. On today's podcast, supporting struggling learners. How do you meet the needs of all your students while also meeting the demands of the curriculum? Every learner has strengths, writes Patricia Vitale Riley. She goes on to say, upon those strengths is where growth can occur. In her new book, Supporting Struggling Learners, Patty outlines 50 instructional moves for the classroom teacher. These moves can be applied across subjects and grades. Patty walks us through how to make a positive impact on student thinking and learning. My colleague Michelle recently spoke with Patty. They started their conversation on the instructional moves to help make a more inclusive culture in the classroom. I really believe that the environment in the room is the first move always whenever you're really looking at pedagogy, whenever you are looking at the ways in which you really want to reach your students. And for struggling learners, I think it's really key because there are sometimes elements of classrooms that, although well-intentioned and maybe work for some, might not always work for our struggling learners. So one of the first moves that I suggest is this whole idea of flexible seating. And, you know, recently, flexible seating has really taken off. People are um, able to create and purchase all these really varied and differentiated types of arrangements within the room. And I think that that's really powerful. I think that that's great from things like hokey stools to mats on the floor to crates that they um, sort of make with comfortable cushions to standing desks to um, those bars that could go beneath the desk where, you know, students could kind of move their feet and, and uh, you know, get some of their energy out. Um, I think that's a great move. But I think ideally, whether or not you have that furniture, I think flexible seating is also a concept. And so what that means is it's really in some ways more metaphorical to what an inclusive culture is. And that is that I need to find a space in this room where I can be my best, most confident self. I need to find a space in this room where I can be a learner who belong, a learner who can, you know, work in a variety of ways with a variety of people. So it is a lot about that furniture, but I also think it's about allowing your students to find space in the room that's really going to work for them. And whether that's um, flexible day to day, whether that's, um, I try that out. I actually talk to students, have them try spaces, reflect on it. Um, I always think there's a teaching structure regardless of any anything. And that's plan, do, review, right? So I'm going to plan to sit here. I'm going to try it out today. And then I'm going to reflect on it. So I think for me, um, one of the most powerful ways to 
really build an inclusive culture is to make the space workable for all your students. And certainly uh, flexible seating is part of that. And, and I love how you talk about kinesthetic movement, not only as you start the book out in this chapter, but throughout the book, you mention it. I love that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and Definitely. I, you end the chapter with the power of yet. And it made me think of, you know, a lot of People have said this type of thing, Debbie Miller, Steph Harvey, you know, smart is not something you are, smart is something you get through hard work. And I thought the power of yet really, like that's what came through to me when I read that little end of the chapter. Yeah, and I I really do believe that. Um, And I think sometimes for, um, you know, our, our students who struggle, lots of things are hard for them. Lots of things can be hard for them and lots of things can be hard for everyone. And that's the point that I want them to get. And that's why I do believe that there's a yet in all of us and I want them to see that. And I want them to know that they too can and are and will be successful. And I think that that's a move that we can all make. I think it's a, a big life lesson and I think it's really powerful with our struggling learners. You have a number of instructional moves in chapter two on the power of collaborative learning and building a culture of collaboration in the classroom. You write about the fishbowl technique. Can you talk about what the fishbowl technique is? So the fishbowl technique to me, um, well, first of all, it's one that's been around for a while. And it's one that I think is incredibly powerful for the diverse array of learners in our rooms. And so to me, what that technique signifies is this idea that collaboration enhances everyone's practice. Collaboration leaves space for lots of voices. Collaboration leaves lots of space for the neurodiversity that we find in our rooms and the various ways in which um, learners can support each other and model for each other. And I really feel that, um, you know, from using Fishbowl so much when I was a classroom teacher to really modeling it in classrooms, I really feel that, as I said, it sort of hinges on just the idea and the importance and power of collaboration but it's really also very grounded in Vygotsky's research of more knowledgeable other, that we really, um, the world is a social place and social learning really works for kids and social learning works for struggling learners. So in the fishbowl technique, what you do is you arrange um, an inner and outer circle. And in your inner and outer circle, you have learners who are doing the work, that's your inner circle. And you have learners who are um, observing the work and joining in to the work in a different way. And so most recently, I had been modeling this in a second grade classroom to uh, launch their reading clubs. And so the inner circle was where a group of learners, this was actually a, um, as I said, a second grade class, um, an inclusion class, which means that like all classrooms, there was a variety of learners, but there were definitely students, um, you know, who had education plans in the room. And our students were mixed in inner and outer circle. And what my inner circle was doing there was really um, trying out the strategy that I was teaching. And what's so powerful about that was that I wasn't modeling the strategy, although that's a great instructional technique, they were modeling the strategy. And so um, I, you know, I refer to them as my inner circle and my outer circle. And as my inner circle is modeling the strategy, and here they were modeling the ways in which they were going to get their reading clubs going, from choosing the text that they would read to deciding how they would read them and when they would meet and uh, find time to talk. Um, The inner circle was doing that work and the outer circle was observing jotting notes, noticing, naming. And I was kind of going back and forth between the two. And so sometimes what I'm doing, um, and I think that this is really one of the powerful ways in which this works for all learners, especially our students who might be struggling, is what I'm 
doing is I'm a learner there too, um, but I'm more of the facilitator. So I'm you know, stepping out and letting a lot of this work happen. So I'm whispering into students' ears, did you notice that? You know, um, or, or great work. Um, I'm whispering into my inner circle. I'm whispering into my outer circle. I'm calling timeouts. And it's really just allowing this work to unfold in a very collaborative ray, way. And because everyone has a role, um, it's really empowering for kids. You write about pre-teaching in chapter three. What do you mean by pre-teaching and how should teachers think about it over the course of a busy day? This whole idea of pre-teaching is one of those ideas that, you know, it's certainly been around for a while. I find that, and this goes back to even when I was a classroom teacher too, believe it or not, it feels like it's something hard to envision fitting into our day because we ask ourselves, well, when am I going to do this? And exactly what will this look like? And how is this going to be different than what I'm going to do with everyone? Why do I need to do this? So what I really try to do is to set out on a journey to explore pre-teaching, not just the ways that I think are most powerful to struggling learners, which is always my first agenda or the first item on my agenda, but really study it in ways that make it practical for teachers. Because at the end of the day, we want these structures to work in the real world. So um, I talk about a few different moves and a couple of them that um, I really think work that make it, as I said, powerful for learners and practical for teachers, the sweet spot between those two things, is um, I think about different structures. I think about that a lot. I certainly do here with with pre-teaching and I think about different tools. So of course, one of the first things that I think about is one of the best ways to make pre-teaching work is to make it a form of small group instruction or to make it what you're doing during um, extra help time. So rather than work on the mindset of, oh, I'll go back and remediate, I'll go back and reteach, which of course we want to do. I'm actually suggesting that we'll have more power with our learners if we put it on the front end. So rather than reteach you something, I'm actually going to have um, a pre-teaching experience with you. And so I'm flipping that definition of extra help time to be a pre-teaching experience. And I'm envisioning that whenever I do small groups, and if you've got that going, you too can implement pre-teaching. And so I think about those structures, and then I certainly think about um, materials, Um, There's a lot of great ways in today's world to bring in um, digital resources. So in a lot of pre-teaching, I'm bringing in visuals, um, brain pop videos, Khan Academy, um, great hashtag on Twitter, uh, um, authentic res, hashtag A-U-T-H-R-E-S, just authentic resources that are for um, students who are perhaps learning a a language, um, who might or who might need just visual support. It's a great tool and it makes pre-teaching really powerful and practical. And I just want to say I loved the quote at the end of that chapter from uh, Justin Minkle. Uh, We can give this child the rare experience of being the kid who gets it first, who helps other kids figure it out, who is ready for the answer the moment he hears the question. I thought that was so powerful. So powerful. And it's, you know, the exact reason why I included it. It was so powerful. And when I was doing a lot of this pre-teaching work in the last few years, I'll never forget um, one student, third grade boy, Jason, where we did some pre-teaching with him. And he was the struggling learner who never participated. When I say never, I mean like the unequivocal capital N-E-V-E-R. And we did some pre-teaching with him. Um, It's actually the lesson that I highlight in uh, move 18, it was a different child was sitting there. He was the one who, who knew things. He was the one who had a lot to offer. And although I believe Jason always had 
new things and had a lot to offer. It was the pre-teaching that was really enabling him um, to be confident and comfortable in our lessons. Patty, you give us a lot of useful techniques on focus, study skills, communication. Can you share your thinking on how teachers can tackle these moves? I felt that way, Michelle, that I really wanted to tackle uh, learning and study skills and communication skills. Because the truth of the matter is, is that those are seminal life skills. And they simultaneously um, are, you know, in a general way, but in, in a way that I think reflects um, some of the traits that we see with our struggling learners that depending on their uh, learning difference, they might actually have um, some challenges with study skills, learning skills, and communication skills. So I felt I really needed to address that. And I think in my teaching, this has been a major focus of mine. Um, back in the day, we called it the learning to learn skills. And I knew how profoundly um, positive that was for my learners, not just for the discipline or the activity um, or the project we were working on, but for really developing those key life skills. So I think for me, uh, regardless of which of those moves, and you named many of them that we might be talking about, um, I, I would say that there's one thread that really goes through all of those moves. And it's this. It's that first of all, we have clarity over what the struggle is. And simultaneously, we have clarity over the learner's strengths. Because when I know those two things, I can really um, think about bringing work to my learners in really profound ways. So I know what your strengths are. I know what your next steps need to be. And I go through, as I said, sort of a process here. Because I think that um, there are a lot of tools that struggling learners can use. But what I sometimes see happen is the tool is given to the learner, but the learner is actually not yet equipped to use the tool. So I see blank planners. And I see study guides that students actually have a hard time navigating. So I think that it's about if the move has to do with the tool, it's about know the challenge, know the strength, introduce a tool, let the learner um, see the tool, teach some things about how to use the tool. You know, so for example, if you're going to introduce a study guide, show students how to navigate it. Show students how to break it down. Show students some particular learning strategies, such as like read, cover, um, say out the answer, you know, um, yeah, go back um, and repeat, you know, some very specific strategies for navigating. Um, breaking it down, those timing skills with studying. I find that a lot of our students in general, but um, in particular students whose challenges might be these learning and study skills, they vastly underestimate how long it's going to take them to do something. So I need to help them navigate that. I want them to work on that. And so it's going to be this, know the challenge, know the strength, find the tool, introduce the tool, let the learner interact with the tool, reflect on the experience. And then ultimately at the end, I always believe it's allow the learner to use the tool that best suits them. And that's one huge point that I make um, in the note-taking tool, uh, excuse me, in the note-taking move move number 32. I really think that there's a gazillion different types of note-taking methods and tools that we can use. But at the end of the day, do you want to know the one that works, Michelle? The one that works for you. Okay. The one that works for you. So I think our struggling learners need time to be introduced, grapple, play around with it, reflect on it, 
And then ultimately, at the end of the day, um, find the tools that are going to help them um, with these study skills and to be able to navigate studying and learning well. You write about home support and some of the ways teachers can connect with parents. Why is this important, Patty? Interestingly for me, Michelle, it's also a question about why I even wrote this book. So part of my experience um, in life, in my own personal life, and in my teaching life um, has been that I have had experiences um, with struggling learners. And I tell a story in the introduction of the book that um, I have an older brother who's learning disabled, and we were learning to read at the same time, even though he is six years my senior. And that profoundly impacted the course of my life, I truly believe. And so I, I know what it's like, um, what a home life um, you know, is like when you have a student who may have challenges or struggles and how um, there are definitely things that a, a parents and guardians and family members um, can really do to support a learner. And I think that um, sometimes this feels hard on both ends. So I wanted to share some of my experiences, both, again, being in the home, um, but also being a teacher who's trying to support the entirety of the child, the whole child, that real wraparound approach that you don't just, you know, live in the world six and a half hours a day while you're in school, that, you know, you have other environments in which you exist. So I felt like it was important to just share ways in which um, parents and teachers can be on the same page, ways in which we can give parents some really simple and practical strategies that I think really work for our struggling learners, um, keep their days positive all around. Towards the end of the book, you provide an if-then format. Tell us how this helps the teacher and talk us through how you set this chapter up. I really felt like there are certain instances that are going to come up in a teacher's life. Um, They came up in mine as a teacher. They come up in the lives of the teachers that I work with every day that really can go um, very positively if you have some tips on how to navigate them well. And although there are a lot of if-thens that happen in our teaching and learning lives every day, the three that really stand out to me are um, when and if you feel that this teacher needs support outside of your classroom. Um, how you navigate that. I'm, you know, I definitely believe that this whole book is, I'm speaking, um, I think there's a lot in it for, you know, all sorts of teachers and specialists, but I'm really, you know, I'm talking classroom teacher to classroom teacher. And so I believe that there are so many moves that you can do within your own classroom. But I too know that you might need more support. And I too know that a learner might need support outside of the general education classroom. So if you need to navigate that, I've got a lot of tips in here. Um, Part and parcel to that is this whole idea of monitoring progress. So if a child is in a process, and schools have different names for the process, schools have, uh, you know, different names, um, an RTI process, a CSC, CST, uh, whatever the name is in the school in which you teach. If you're navigating that, where a child is being given some extra support, interventions, um, you know, teaching moves that you're implementing, and you need to monitor that closely, how do you really do that in a way that's practical? Um, I've lived that. I've been there. So I wanted that to be part of the if then. Um, And then, of course, as I said, part and parcel to that as well is if you have the absolute beauty of having another um, adult in the room to support you, whether it's a co-teacher or an instructional aide, um, how to navigate that. And so I really kind of break down those three dimensions. And the first thing that I try to do 
is to provide the teacher with a way to navigate the child study team, the school support team process. Um, I give them a step-by-step plan for that. And I lay out some assessments that I think are great um, quote-unquote data points, uh, which is typically the language that schools use. They want to see data. They want to see data. Um, I get that. I'm a data gal. I can I can deal with that. Um, but I, what I also really and truly know, and this is true of all student learning, but with struggling learners especially, is that I have a teacher gut. And I know what's happening with these students. So I'm trying to find ways for teachers to quantify in a way that is and appears like um, data um, because I think that it really is. I want teachers to quantify their everyday interactions. And as I said, in simple and practical ways. Um, So I really kind of build a step by step. And what I've done is just sort of opened up my um, files, if you will, to all the different checklists and forms progress monitoring tools, conference notes, planners, all the different ways that we can navigate bringing a child to a team, um, keeping progress and ongoing notes on a child. And then last in that chapter, I have the um, co-teaching model because that I have lived personally and I've seen in classrooms some of my favorite work to do with um, the schools that I'm you know, currently working with is to really unpack those co-teaching models. Um, it's the power of two. There are two teachers in there and there are a variety of ways in which you can really maximize that power of two. So I really lay out those different co-teaching models, what the benefits are and when you might use them. You end the book with some final thoughts and your this I believe statements. What thoughts would you like to end this podcast with? I ended that the book with, you know, it's called My Final Thoughts. Um, and as you said, Michelle, it is a this I believe. Um, I, you know, love this I believe. I loved it back from when it was, you know, on NPR and thisibelieve.org. I think it's one of the most powerful things that we can do as a teacher is say, um, I think that when we are so clear about what we believe, then it is so profoundly helpful for us in our everyday lives, in our everyday teaching lives. And I really believe um, in the transformative power of yet. And I really believe in the first um, belief statement that I have there, and that is that every child has the right and the capacity to learn. I believe that in my heart and soul. And I really believe that there are moves that we can make as classroom teachers, that we are so important um, in these children's lives and they are so important in our lives. And I really believe that we can um, bring them moves that are going to be powerful for them. And I really believe the best way to do that is to understand that all learners have strengths. And when we know those, we are so equipped and well set to really support them and move them forward, right? It's the old Don Murray, you need to know 10 things about a learner before you can teach them. I really and truly believe that. Um, I believe that relationships matter. At the end of the day, um, yeah, we have curriculum and we have standards and we have units and we have all that great stuff, but we don't teach those things. We teach students and so relationships matter. And I want for all the work that I do to really be hinged upon that. Um, And I believe that um, inclusion, which is, you know, a terminology that's used to name programming or places. um, My belief is it's a mindset. Inclusion is a mindset that um, if you believe, as I do, that all learners um, need to be included and inclusive of this learning world, that it's going to lead you to some pretty powerful moves for struggling learners. And um, at the end of the day, classrooms, their workshops and their laboratories, and we're all different and they should be messy and fun. And what I like to call organized chaos. And when we embrace this, I think we create a world in which our struggling learners really they thrive. 
Our thanks to Patty for her time today. You can learn more about her new book, Supporting Struggling Learners, by visiting Heinemann.com, where you can find a sample chapter from the book, blogs, and more. Be sure to also follow Patty on Twitter, at Patty V. Riley. We'd love for you to subscribe to the Heinemann Podcast on iTunes and Google+, where you can also leave a comment or review. We're now also streaming on the Stitcher and TuneIn Radio app. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann Authors by downloading the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. All this and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.